We turn now to the New Testament. We continue our study of Jude, and we have come to Jude verses 8 through 11 for this evening. Jude 8 through 11. So again, hear from God's Word. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. We stop there for this evening. Let us pray. Lord our God, we're hearing warning again. We heard the warning of judgment last week in this call for believers to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And following that warning, hard upon it now, there is the reminder of what follows when there is not dependence on your word of truth not an upholding of the faith that we have received, the apostolic testimony, but instead reliance upon dreams or whims. And because we live in an age where even those who claim to be Christian are often driven by image and emotion rather than by the truth of your word, we would receive this warning and we would understand this is part of our call to contend for the faith. So grant us grace for faithful contention, Lord. And address our hearts with the truth and the power and the beauty of your word. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Jude has fleshed out his call for his readers to contend for the faith, he's given a great motivation in the verses we considered last week. And that is the warning against God's judgment for sin. And he's made plain that distortion or perversion of the truth of God is an offense against God for which God's wrath does come and will come. And the history of God's dealing with his people includes many stories, many accounts of judgment that comes for disobedience and rejection of God's truth. And When we contemplate the nature of the gospel itself, I will say again that embrace of the truth of the gospel is necessarily an embrace of the certainty of God's wrath and judgment against sin. I've said it before in these terms, I'm sure, that really the gospel is nonsensical apart from the reality of God's judgment for sin. Now, one of the hallmarks of false teaching is that it will minimize sin or even deny the reality of sin. And very often, false teachers will never mention sin, and they certainly won't mention the reality of judgment from God. But how do we properly and reasonably explain the gospel to anyone 
without declaring that the wage of sin is death. There's no other purpose for which Christ becomes sin and suffers on the cross than the fact that God who is holy judges sin and the judgment he has pronounced is death and the pains of hell forever. This is a manifestation of his holiness. Every bit as much as his saving grace and applying the work of Christ to particular sinners is a manifestation of his holiness. And Jude has given in our last text three examples of God's judgment to underscore what's at stake in maintaining the truth of the gospel, the truth of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And the first example was those saved from Egypt, those brought out by the power of God after plagues were visited upon Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, those delivered at the Red Sea by the power of God. We read that after Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt, he destroyed those who did not believe. There are multiple instances of God sending the judgment of death upon his grumbling people in the wilderness. And what was their grumbling? Not rebellion against Moses, but rebellion against God himself. There's reference to angels who have fallen under condemnation for rebellion against God. And we know that the angels, they know God. They know the Trinitarian truth. Of God, They know that he is one. They believe this, James says, and they shudder. And yet God has sent judgment. And so there are angels that Jude says are kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And then there is the reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the name Sodom has become synonymous with sexual sin. And these two had in their midst one who lived righteously, Second Peter says, a man of righteousness. And yet they refused and rejected his plea that they turned from their wicked intent when they came to his house in a night when he had an angelic visitation. Now, Judas building from these examples, these warnings of God's judgment in our text, they've been set before us, these examples of judgment to come But now he's building upon those examples to give an explanation for what the perversion of grace does. What is its result and what is its fruit? Not in terms of judgment finally from God, but in terms of of the perversion of God's truth leading to distortion of life and perversion of life. And so Jude is pointing back to the the foundation he's laid in those three examples of judgment when he says, yet in like manner these people also. Those are the first words of our text this evening in in verse 8. Yet in like manner these people also. And so these people are, are the ones against whom there must be contention made as Jude addresses his audience. These people are a present enemy These are the ones who have crept into the church, who were long ago designated for condemnation. These are the ungodly people who are perverting the grace of our God into sensuality and denying our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the words from verse 4. 
These people are being likened to those who've gone before the examples of judgment given. In the same manner, these people, he says, are relying on dreams. Do you see that? They're relying on dreams. The, the Greek word translated dream here indicates a, a vision that is invested with some kind of meaning. What's at issue here? These people have come into the church and they're, they're distorting, they're perverting the grace of God. That's why there must now be a contention for the truth of God. And what is the basis for what they come telling, teaching, or saying, what's the basis? They're relying on dreams. This is a rejection of God's truth through a claim that there's something more or something else they have that they have received through some form of revelation. And this is typically at issue with false teaching. A claim to something new, something more, something else than what God has given in what we have called this morning the apostolic testimony. In his holy word. This was continually at play in the Exodus. When we read of Exodus and we read of the wilderness wanderings, we find that there are continual rebellions against Moses and at times against Aaron. And there's the one instance where Aaron actually leads a kind of rebellion while Moses is on the top of Sinai in, in casting the gold into the shape of calves that the people might know what gods they serve and worship. What was that? It's always a rebellion against the revealed truth of God. The rebellion against Moses was never against Moses. It was ultimately against God. It was a rejection of the authoritative word given to Moses and pronounced to the people of God. And when they refused the word coming from Moses, it wasn't Moses they rejected. It was the Lord himself. On what basis? Personal comfort, personal preferences, personal whims, a remembrance of the past, dreams. We could contemplate how the condemned angels referenced here rejected God's truth. We see it with Sodom and Gomorrah, the rejection. But in every case, what happens? Whatever God's word says has been set aside for what people want right now. For the gratification of their own desires. For the satisfaction of their own whims. They're driven by something other than truth. And God has always warned his people against being directed or driven by our emotions or desires rather than his truth. Moses sounds that warning in Deuteronomy. He's led the people through the wilderness. They're on the brink of the promised land. And he is going to remind God's people. He's going to rehearse for them all that God has said and all that God has done. And he's going to warn them. In Deuteronomy 4, now Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you the men who followed the Baal of Peor. We'll come back to that with the reference to Balaam. But do you hear 
what the warning is given by Moses here. Don't be led by your passions. Don't be led by your whims. Don't add your ideas, your rules to the revealed word and will of God given through me. Walk in obedience to the word of God. That is the warning here. The prophets were continually contending against false prophets who again spoke on the basis of visions they claimed to have seen. Extra revelation beyond that God had authorized his prophets to give. And so in Ezekiel 13, there is this denunciation of such false prophets and prophecy. The word of the Lord came to me, to Ezekiel. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Now what's important there is this denunciation of prophets who prophesy from their own hearts, following their own spirit, who have seen nothing that God has given. You see, the distinction is being made here between the faithful prophets of God authorized to proclaim the word of God, Ezekiel is among those, and those who are presumptive and who make claims that they cannot back up with a word from God, but they're only spouting their opinions, speaking from their own hearts how foolish it is when God's people are driven by our impulses, by our whims, by our lusts, rather than being directed by the word of God's truth. Ultimately, that is a rejection of Christ himself. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author of Hebrews says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you hear what the author of Hebrews is saying? God has spoken and given a prophetic word but now he has sent his son. Jesus, the word come from the father, the living word is the full and perfect expression of the will of God for your salvation and mine, for your life and mine. And how do we know this living word, Jesus Christ? He's authorized chosen men who have written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we have received his word of truth in the Bible. As Jesus addressed his disciples, as John records, in an extended fashion on the night of his betrayal, he promised that he would send his spirit who would bring all things to their remembrance. And we've considered the, the sending forth of the apostles on their first apostolic mission, but we understand that, that while they were empowered in that first mission that we read about this morning in Matthew chapter 10, there would be the bestowing of the Spirit of God recorded in the second act, chapter of Acts by which they were empowered to go forth into all the world in the proclamation of the apostolic testimony. 
And it's through the ministry of the apostles that there has been recorded for us the truth of our God. And now we have been furnished with this word so that we're not left to our emotions, to our whims, to the sorting out of the opinions of others. But we have his word of truth to direct us. Paul wrote Timothy to encourage him in his continuing ministry of the gospel in 2 Timothy when he wrote from prison urging Timothy's continued faithfulness. He said to him, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And we're called to be well furnished by the word and spirit of God. That's why I'll say to you, it is not enough for you to simply bring your Bibles to church on Sunday And to think that my preaching morning and evening is is all that you need. It is not. It is not enough for me. It's not enough for my family. It's not enough for you. We have to be diligent students of the Word of God. Our Bibles need to be open all through the week. We've got to be learning and growing throughout the week. And I will tell you this, that as we give ourselves to the reading of Scripture to the learning of Scripture, even as families, I've commended to you memorizing Scripture. I think that's so helpful uh, for us. You will find that that your capacity uh, to, to apprehend God speaking through His Word read and preached on the Lord's Day will be deepened. It will be enhanced. It will be enriched. And you know, it's it's kind of funny when... when um, when people start really growing in their faith and the Word of God becomes really important to them and, and they start reading it regularly, it's amazing at how much better they think their preacher gets. Like, oh, he's really, he's really improving. And, and sometimes just the same old preacher and maybe he's not that good, but guess what? Ears and eyes are open, hearts are eager. And there's an engagement in the Word. And that's what we're called to, to this engagement. And I would say to to our our students who are here, our our young people and our children. You know, when when you're studying and doing your schoolwork, you really need to study hard. You really need to do your best. That's important. But you know, the most important study you make throughout life, now and into your old age, is going to be the study of God's Word. Because it becomes the basis upon which you understand everything else. The truth of God becomes the basis upon which you judge everything else. And there may well be times uh, in school at any level of education that you're being taught things and you'll have, to, you'll have to respond to teachers and you'll have to take tests. But all the while, there may be times that you realize this is really not what God's truth would affirm. But if you're not in God's word, you won't know that. You won't discern that. And that's the point. We can't be led by dreams. We cannot rely on dreams. Our own are the dreams of others. We shouldn't be directed and led by by what others say who claim some authority if it does not check out against the Word of God. We always look to the Word of God as our primary source for life and faith. 
in school, uh, students begin learning about the difference between primary and secondary sources. And remember this as you learn that the Bible is your primary source in life. It is your primary source for discerning truth. And our God's word is true. And I'll go a step further in regard to warning. Claims of extra biblical revelation deny the sufficiency of scripture. Whenever anyone says, God told me this or God gave me a vision, you need to take a step back. Because God does speak to his people. Be sure of that. He speaks through his word. And there's not fresh revelation given. God has spoken fully and finally through his son. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit who applies this word to our hearts and our lives. It becomes fresh to us in the ministry of the Holy Spirit applying this word of truth and, and, and opening our minds to receive and understand the truth. But there's not new revelation coming. And when someone claims a vision, when someone claims a dream, when someone says, God told me, and they have some new instruction for you, take a step back because you've already been furnished with what you need. It's the word of God. It's the truth of God. I think I've mentioned this quote before. I don't remember who said it first. I think I've heard it through Rick Phillips uh, down at Second Pres in Greenville. But if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. If you want to hear him speak out loud, read the Bible out loud. That's how God speaks to us. And our great call is to love this word, to cherish it, to read it and study it. And the oldest among us who've been diligent in Bible study for all their lives can tell you they're still learning and they're still growing. That's one of the beautiful things about our God. We can't fathom the depths of his beauty and the glory of his holiness, but he's called us to dive in and to pursue. There's a warning here against relying on dreams. And Jude goes on to describe the result of preferring dreams to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And this is the warning of where this leads. And the first thing that he mentions of these people, the people against whom his readers are contend, is that they defile the flesh. That's an inevitable result of casting off the truth of God and the word of God. Because if we're not directed and led by God's word of truth, what will likely direct or drive us? Our impulses, our basest impulses, our, our passions, our desires, the, the influence of others or the culture around us. And where will these lead typically, almost inevitably, if not to the defilement of the flesh? He goes on to say that we become like Unreasoning animals. Unreasoning animals. That is a description of one who is led by bare instinct, isn't it? Not by reliance upon the word of God's truth, but like an unreasoning animal, just following base impulse. That's what happens when we rely on dreams, on whims, and not the direction of the word of God. And I'll have to ask, what does direct you? It's one thing to be directed here when we're together at church. But again, I'll, I'll address a question to our students because I can remember as a, as a young uh, student 
recognizing, realizing in myself, I live two very different lives. I lived, behaved, spoke one way with my parents and at church and a very different way at school. And the question that I realized at that point, and I can look back and, and remember, is what's the reason for this? And it's the direction that I was taking. If I was home, I knew to follow the direction of my dad because I knew the consequences if I didn't. When I was at church, I could say the same thing. When I was at school, I felt free from that, from that overwatch. But you see, my eyes were set too low in terms of where my allegiance was to be placed. Certainly, I, I owed an honor to my father, but I was not mindful when I was at school of my allegiance to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was not being directed by his word. I was always trying to impress my classmates. And the best way for me to do that because of the way I was was to be a smart aleck with my teachers. What's driving you? What's directing the way you understand yourself and the way you speak to others and the way you behave? It's not just a question for our young people, though, is it? It's a question for all of us. And we don't always outgrow, do we, the basic tendencies sort of the default tendencies of our lives, we have to be ever corrected and directed by the word of God's truth. I can turn right back into a smart aleck middle schooler in the wrong time and with the wrong company. If my heart is not directed to the, the shaping word of God and the power of his spirit, what's directing you? God warned through Moses that his people not be shaped by those around them. Going to Leviticus, there's this warning to the people of God through Moses regarding what they'd seen and been familiar with in Egypt, the practice of the Egyptians, and what they were going to find in the land of Canaan. Both the Egyptians and the Canaanites worshipped many gods, and they were very immoral in their service of these gods. And so in Leviticus 18, the Lord God spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. That's Leviticus 18, the first five verses. Now, if you go home this evening and read the rest of Leviticus 18, you'll find out that what Moses is particularly addressing here, God speaking through Moses, is sexual immorality. This will be a whole chapter mostly given over to defining biblical sexuality and outlawing practices that were very common in Egypt and in Canaan. And what is God saying through Moses here? Don't be like the people around you. That's not where you take your direction or instruction. I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and rules. You will live by them. You will have life by them. Our cultural moment means I should never pass one of these opportunities again to sound the warning. Do not be catechized by what our culture is trying to tell you or even screaming at you about gender issues and issues of sexuality. 
go back to the primary source to know the very simple truth of sexual morality. One man, one woman, bound together by God in the covenant of marriage for the full enjoyment of the blessing that God has intended in marital intimacy. It is that simple. Do not be catechized by our culture, by the entertainment industry, by social media, by the conversation of friends over the lunch table at school or at work. Do not be catechized by these influences. That is to listen to the Egyptians and the Canaanites, but hear the word of God in its simplicity and its beauty. Sin is always complicated and confusing. The will of God is set forth clearly. Jude names Balaam. And he's pointing back to sexual sin in the wilderness in Egypt. We referenced Micah 6 two weeks ago. In Micah 6, there is this warning in verse 5. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Revelation 21 sheds more light on what's being referred to in Micah, and it points back to Numbers 25. But in Revelation, excuse me, Revelation 2, uh, verse 14, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. We return to this instance again this week because, again, we have Balaam mentioned. The sake of gain to Balaam's error, that's that to which these false teachers that Jude is contending against and calling for contention against have, have turned. Balaam is that prophet who was hired by Balak to curse God's people, but he could not. And it seems to be the case that the, the text in Numbers doesn't connect the dots, but we find the dots connected in Revelation and 2 Peter. It seems to be the case that in order to get the hire of a prophet, while he could not curse Israel, Balaam could scheme with Balak and explain to him how to bring ruin to this great people passing through his land. And the scheme was simple. Invite them to come to your feasts. Welcome them into the service of your gods and to your festal seasons, which were, were seasons marked by service to fertility gods, which involved sexual immorality. And so the men of Israel went into the Moabite women. We rehearsed that a bit in our study of Ruth. And it was a scheme that led to death. Because God's people weren't being directed by his word or his holiness. They were being directed by the practice of the Moabites. Peter makes reference to this. Second Peter has close similarity to Jude in, in a condemning word against false teachers. In 2 Peter 2, 14 to 16, in a reference to such false teachers, he says, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained for greed, accursed children forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. 
Something will direct and drive you in life. Something will establish the boundaries for your behavior and conversation. The question is what? What is establishing the boundaries for your behavior and your conversation? For Balaam, it was not a word from God, though he's called a prophet. Instead, it was a desire for gain, dishonest gain. Judas likening these false teachers against whom contention must be made to Balaam and to his love for gain. Moses warned against a desire to, to follow after the culture surrounding, whether in Egypt or in Canaan. Are you like an unreasoning animal? Or day by day, do you have a desire to be directed by the word of God's truth? Rejection of God's truth, disavowal of God's truth, it, it leads to a baseness of life, a defiling of the flesh. And this is rejection of authority. It's the rejection of God's authoritative word. His instruction for our lives, the apostolic testimony. But Jude's not done yet. He shows that, that rejecting God's authority involves more than debasement or defiling of flesh. He points to the blaspheming of glorious ones. This is an interesting reference. Again, from the start of our text, he's saying, in like manner, these people also, the people affecting the church now, in, in like manner to those who've rebelled against God in the past, rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. And then he goes into some examples, and already we've looked ahead to these, but he says, of the first, which we have not considered, when the archangel Michael contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they have walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. That's the whole of our text that I've just read again. And in three times, the word blasphemer, blasphemous appears three times. That, that word means to, to speak irreverently so as to harm or defame someone. To blaspheme, to speak irreverently so as to harm or to defame someone. And Jude seems to be referring here to an apocryphal book He's referring to extra-biblical literature in this instance where the archangel Michael is disputing with the devil about the body of Moses. And this is a, a curious instance where one of the inspired writers of Scripture appeals to a writing that is not inspired. It's not really that uncommon that this should happen. We know that the Apostle Paul, for example, is recorded in Acts in preaching, refers to uh, poets that were familiar to the Greeks, but Jude seems to be using this instance to make a point. He's making a point that those who cast off the truth of God in rejection of authoritative revelation can, can defame or blaspheme not only the name of God, but it seems 
even they can discount the reality of the spiritual powers in which they unwittingly dabble by giving themselves over to sin. Now on the first hand, again, whenever one is led by dreams, there is the rejection of God's truth. And that is an affront to God himself. And that is blasphemous. There are examples of that in scripture. And one of the earliest we might think of perhaps would be Cain who killed his brother Abel, and when the Lord questioned him, he responded, am I my brother's keeper? And there's a blasphemous denial or rejection of the authority of God represented in those words of Cain to God. In our Old Testament reading from number 16, we heard the story of Korah's rebellion. We read that they assembled themselves together against Moses, and Korah is the ringleader of a mass of people. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And Korah here is rejecting the authority of God. His rejection is not of Moses, but he's claiming something for himself. On what basis? What had God said to him? Nothing. He was led by presumption. And he's blaspheming God effectively. And he will suffer as a result. He and his household will be swallowed up by the ground along with many others. Why such a harsh judgment? Because this is blasphemy against God. But we also find indicated in this text that those who cast off the truth of God's word seem to cast off the reality of the danger of dabbling with spiritual powers of darkness as if they really were not powerful. And understand that Satan in his power is circumscribed by God, but he is, as Paul calls him, the prince of the power of the air. As Jesus calls him, the prince of this world. He does have a spiritual power. He is simply bounded by God and will finally be destroyed with the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. <coughs> But the warning is against taking spiritual powers of darkness lightly, it seems here. In Zechariah chapter 3, there's this fascinating account. And we read, Zechariah write that he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And it's a beautiful depiction of the Lord graciously protecting Joshua against accusation. But even as Satan is rebuked by the Lord, what is the pronouncement the Lord rebuked? It's a reminder that it's by God's power that spiritual forces of darkness are addressed. Not a presumptive power of anyone who would diminish or or disparage the reality of the powers of spiritual darkness. There's a fascinating account in Acts 19 of Jewish exorcists. You may recall this. And and they're trying to assume for themselves power over spiritual forces and demons in the name of Jesus. And, And we read that in Acts 19, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that were that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick 
and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, over those whom had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. We never hear that happening, do we, to Jesus when he casts out demons? We never hear that happening when the apostles address evil spirits in the name of Jesus. But here, these Jewish exorcists make a presumption. And they've cast off the authority of God's word. They're acting on their own ideas of authority. And they're wrong. And they take a beating as a result. Because they blasphemed the name of Jesus by claiming it unrightly. And they blaspheme the evil spirits, we might say, by assuming an authority over them they did not have. Paul warns the Corinthians about participating in worship or in banquets, in idol temples. And he says to them, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to to be participants with demons You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake the table of the Lord and the table of demons. The reality of demonic power is presented there. By the Apostle Paul, he writes in Ephesians about rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And if you reject biblical truth like that and think that spiritual forces of darkness are to be Um, toyed with, then you're rejecting God's authoritative word. But that's what happens. Where God's authority is rejected, there's defilement of flesh, there's blasphemy exercised. And what's the remedy? Well, this is a call to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The remedy is found in the apostolic testimony. The remedy is found in fleeing to the word of God and to its truth and trusting in the word and spirit of God to direct our lives. In Ephesians 6, in that reference to spiritual forces of darkness and the equipping that God gives, the last piece of equipment is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And it's by that word of truth that we are furnished with what Paul calls the good deposit. And so Jude is not only reminding us that judgment is sure for sin, but he's reminding us that when there is carelessness about the word of God, rejection of the word of God, and preference for dreams and whims, we bring destruction into our lives, the defilement of our flesh, and the judgment of God. Do you see what's at stake now? As you consider your own life and as you contemplate what we see happening in the world around us where very often even those who claim to be Christian are rejecting the truth of God's word or particular portions of God's word. Do you see what is at stake? When we're driven by emotion and have rejected revelation, when we're directed by image 
instead of by truth. So you shouldn't be surprised that there's, with rejection of authority, defilement of flesh, and blasphemy against God. And we see the ruin all around us. And so our first guard, call is to guard our hearts and our minds. How? With the word of truth. It's what we do as families when we open God's word. It's what we do with our children as we're teaching them the truth about God. It's the way we are furnished ourselves to go into the world because that's the point of contention. Not that we hunker down in our homes and hide from the world because it's dangerous, but that we are equipped and strengthened together as God's people in our homes, in our gatherings, in our worship, so that we can go into the world which is our Father's world carrying light into the midst of darkness and contending against falsehood, which destroys and brings death by proclaiming the word of his truth and upholding the apostolic testimony. Do you hear Jude calling for faith and for faithfulness? Do you hear Jude rejecting reliance upon dreams and insisting upon the truth of the grace of God according to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Are you intentionally walking in this light? Because all around us there is just so much darkness. And if you and I don't carry forth the light of Christ, how will our neighbors ever see light? If we're not the witnesses to this truth, if we're not bearing the apostolic testimony, what lies will direct their lives into the path of destruction? We have an apostolic calling with a small a, we said this morning. We're not just called to follow Jesus as disciples. We are sent out by him with an authoritative message. And the authority is not us. The authority is in the word. The authority preached this day is not mine. It is the authority of the word. But we're all equipped and furnished. Because the Lord Jesus is sending us to contend. Are you going? Will you go this week? Let us pray.